Uh, okay, everybody, thanks for sticking with us. We went around the bend there, coming up in the last segment here, the longest segment. Yeah, we are in Road to Nowhere if you uh, take a look at who's driving the car. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like being in a taxi cab in the country these days, you know, in a city where some uh, suspicious and sinister-looking person is driving you around and you realize, hey, hey, I, this is the wrong direction. Where where are we going? What's, what's happening? That's kind of what it's like. I suppose in this segment we'll have to talk about what happened this week with uh, our own Untermensch, which is, uh, you know, for you non-German speakers, of course, is the underman. Yes, that would be our president, uh, who took a few moments out of his busy day of uh, sleeping and being pumped full of chemicals and probably a hyperbaric tube in the basement in Delaware to uh, rise up, get jazzed up with whatever they feed him or shoot into him or... I don't know what they do. Wave the magic pixie dust over him for 20 minutes so he can get out there and rant, rave, and, and wave his arms around. Uh, gave one of the more interesting speeches in American history, I have to say. There's nothing like a uh, dark red background with uh, menacing silhouettes of military personnel standing behind you while you rant and rave about your political enemies. Yeah, that's America for you, huh? Yeah, that's America in 2022. Welcome to Joe Biden's America. There's going to be a blue wave because of this. You bet there is. What a terrible thing. I didn't want to talk about it too much early in the show because I know you've heard so much about it all week. And, you know, I mean, come on. There's only so much you can listen to. But it was interesting. And the whole ultra MAGA, MAGA, we've, we have had a whole new lexicon has popped up in the United States this last couple of years. Have you noticed that? Not only the ridiculous pronouns, these zer, er, e, or, e, i, e, i, o, you know, those. Not just those, but, uh, the acronyms of, uh, let's see. Somebody asked what, what BPOC was. And I said, it's not a rapper, although it sounds like it. Black indigenous person of color. It's supposed to include all of those people. Okay. And now the constant addition to the, uh, <laughs> the gay, lesbian, trans, X, S, Y, you know, uh, community, the long actor, they just longer of time, plus, plus, I, O, U, you know, those, uh, even poor, uh, you know, Fidel Castro's, uh, possible, possible, uh, he just seems like a Fidel Castro, at least fan up there in Canada, you know, Mr. Trudeau, couldn't remember all of them in a speech. And I think it was written down for him. He had to keep looking at it. But, yeah, we have a whole new lexicon now. And not only are we making up words. I mean, MAGA at least sounds for, you know, make America great again. I mean, it's at least an acronym that's uh, easier to understand. But also uh, we have words that we continue to use that it's clear that the people using them don't understand what they mean. And, you know, uh, President Biden's speech is a good example of that. Semi-fascist is a weird word. I'm not sure exactly what semi-fascism is at all. Is he implying that people are fascist, but they're not trying hard enough? Or they're only working part-time at it? Not like a professional, you know, fascist versus an amateur fascist? So this is a semi-professional thing he's talking about? It's idiotic. And here's the other thing. And I know I've mentioned this before, but... Ask somebody that throws that word around all the time what it means. What does fascism mean? Where does it come from? Well, the best you'll get out of them usually is, well, you know, Nazis. You mean National Socialists? Yeah, National Socialist Party. 
Okay. Yeah, that's what that's... You realize that Nazis are, by definition, their own definition, socialists, right? National socialism. I don't know why that seems difficult for someone on the left. They seem horrified, like you're making it up when you bring it. Yeah, socialists. That's what the whole whole purpose of the party was. National socialism. You know, if you're a socialist, you know, you're at least thinking some of the same things, right? By definition. Boy, they hate that. Fascism is an interesting one because fascism is not German at all, which these idiots will try and tell you. It is Italian. We mentioned this before. Uh, A fascist, fascist, F-A-S, let's see, depends on how you spell it out of the Latin, but uh, what it is is it's a bundle of sticks wrapped around tightly, usually with with a cord or a ceremonial piece of leather cord or it gets fancier. And oftentimes it has an axe head sticking out of it. Now that is an ancient Roman symbol. See, the reason you have to look at Rome so carefully is because it's everywhere. Are the influence of Republican and Imperial Rome, and even including the Roman Empire and Byzantium, later Constantinople, now unfortunately Istanbul, uh, is a pervasive thing in, a, in throughout Europe and many other places. As a matter of fact, it was pretty influential in Russia, for instance. Kaiser in German is, of course, a derivation of Caesar. Tsar, the Tsar of Russia, another uh, derivation of Caesar. So you see it every place. And so this bundle of sticks tied tightly together, oftentimes with an axe head, was a symbol symbol in Roman law. And it symboled what was called imperium. In other words, the power over a certain thing. Now, the amount of imperium a person might have imbued by the Roman Senate or later the state or the emperor or whatever the case may be depended. And so the people that attended the person who had this imperium uh, was accompanied by individuals usually bearing this symbol, this fascist fascist, no T on it there, and to show that the power of the people, of course, is drawn together, like we talk about all the time, when you put a bunch of sticks together, they're much harder to break, that's the power of the people, and when they put the axe head with it, they surround it, and the axe head symbolizes the power of the state surrounded by and strengthened by the people, I mean, that's one one of the explanations of it, it's a very, very old symbol, might even go back to the Etruscans, which were, of course, uh, sort of uh, scouting around there in Italy uh, before the Romans got uh, fired up about it. But it appears everywhere. If you look at some of our older coin Egypts on it, it's in all sorts of statues. A lot of times it, the uh, the symbol appears without the axe head because it was <laughs> the axe head was hard in many instances to include into things. For instance, if you happen to look at the uh, chair in which Abraham Lincoln is sitting in the Lincoln Memorial, you'll notice the front of the chair is decorated, and it's decorated with a bundle of sticks with a leather cord wrapped around them. That is a symbol of the power of the state gathered from the people. You see it all over the place. You see it, and there's some statues of Washington with it. It's back on some of the, I think, some of the Mercury Dimes have it on it. It's all over the place. And uh, so that is where that word comes from. And the Italians under Mussolini, who was obsessed with trying to make Italy 
in the 1920s and 30s somehow resemble Rome, the real Rome, not the city they happen to be living in, but the empire and republic, depending on which piece you liked, uh, tried to use their symbolism all over the place. So they formed all of these these different leagues, and they used a lot of Roman symbolism. They used the eagles because the eagles of Rome led the legions. That's one of the reasons we're so fascinated in the West with the eagle, and that, that perched eagle that you see all over everything was the design that was incorporated usually in the eagle standard that the legions carried, and it was a very, very sacred symbol to the, to the legions because it symbolized them, and it was like a flag, uh, very much like the flag that we would see now. And so a lot of them were used in that. So Mussolini co-opted a lot of those symbols, and that one was used quite a bit. And then a lot of these uh, groups around that were supportive of Mussolini's party uh, adopted it, and they, you know, they called themselves like, you know, the urban fascistas and this and that, uh, and used it as a symbol because it was a symbol of the people and the power and this and that from ancient times. And it got incorporated. Into it. And the word then became incorporated to stand for all far left-wing movements. Because remember, Mussolini was a, was a socialist too, just, just like National Socialism in Germany. It's not a far right-wing, you know, the divine right of kings type of thing. But it's been, we've decided that it is. The reality of tyranny is that it's a circle. It doesn't matter where you start. You end up in the same spot. You just call it different things. You can call it national socialism. You can call it uh, fascism in Italy. You can call it uh, communism in the Soviet Union or Cuba. You can call it whatever you want. But the way that you treat people and the way that you enforce your will upon them all pretty much is the same. It's tyranny, autocracy. Now, there's some, some tweaks to it. Uh, in some instances, in uh, some places, Nazi Germany, Communist Russia, although Communist Russia kind of got rid of this, but there was an idea of corporativism, which was the idea that the state sort of all of a sudden became part of all of your major businesses. Uh, they had a seat at the table in every business. The business was not completely taken over and nationalized, like, say, that ended up doing in, in the Soviet Union eventually. But rather, the business continued, but the government was really running a big part of it. They just sort of introduced themselves into the, the process. Uh, I'm worried we're seeing some of that now in, in, a, in a little more backdoor way. But uh, eventually, the face of some of the big businesses in Europe in the fascist countries, uh, in the National Socialist countries, became indistinguishable from the government. That's a very dangerous thing. The Russians screwed themselves over by taking it over with nationalizing them and sticking a bunch of people that didn't know how to run them at all in charge of them and eventually, you know, ran themselves out of business. I mean, if you think about how long the Soviet Union really survived from, you know, 1913 revolution to 1917 after the war, and they're staggering along, huge amounts of starvation under Stalin, uh, using all of their uh, political and actual actual capital to try and keep up with the United States and the West in an arms race and pretty much starving and holding their people back into a third world environment. 
they weren't as successful. They weren't successful really in any way. They were militarily very powerful for a while, but at, a, at such cost that they became a hollowed out uh, system of government. They couldn't maintain themselves. Uh, they just couldn't keep people happy. And what they were fortunate about in that regard, and it kept going for a while, were two things. One, after World War II, where they sacrificed enormous amounts of men, enormous amounts of men. Uh, this is the Russian way of war, which is to just throw people at things until the other side, you know, gives up. And then they, they move in with a little more, uh, let's just say, well-trained core that is very much smaller than the rest of the army. And the rest of the army is used pretty much as uh, uh, people use their bullets up on them. And this is the way the Russians have used things for many times. You're seeing that kind of in the Ukraine now. We don't understand, we don't understand, or at least the people talking about it that we hear either don't understand or choose not to discuss how the Russians conduct war. It doesn't mean it's going to win all the time. It just means it's how, how they approach it. And, but their country after World War II, when they just stayed in Eastern Europe, wouldn't leave. It's sort of like a house guest that moves into your spare room. You know, it's like, I thought you were leaving. No, I decided I was going to live here now. Uh, they just drained pretty much all the resources and everything out of uh, Eastern Europe helped them survive. They wouldn't have lasted anywhere near as long as they did had that not happened. And they did such crazy things like uh, when they took over like shoes. Shoes were a big thing in the, in the old Soviet Union. Hard to get, expensive, never were enough of them. And you got government mandates. I had an economics class in, uh, discussing this. Actually, it was an East European communism class. And they were talking about how the orders for shoes, as an example, that the uh, head of production, the government head of production, would order a certain number of shoes. We need a million shoes. And the government factory, in order to try and be as uh, lazy or uh, to save as much as possible for themselves, would make a million pairs of baby shoes. And then that wouldn't work out very well. Say, no, no, no. What we mean is we need men's and women's shoes. You got to make you make shoes for adults. Oh, okay. So they made them. They made them all in the same size. And this kind of thing would go on all the time. And it was incredibly inefficient. And it didn't keep people very happy. But you have to remember that the Russian population have never really had a middle class, which seems to be the aim of what's going on with the progressives in America. They want the middle class gone. They want a thin layer of uh, elites and everybody else. And it never works out for the everybody else. And... The Russians had always been like that. They never really had a middle class. So the people that were there had never had things all that great. So they were a little more fatalistic about it and more likely to take it for a lot longer than some other countries were. That's where I think the the actual sort of, uh, let's say, silver lining to uh, this uh, progressive cloud we have now is that they're moving too fast. Our country has a pretty robust or had a pretty robust middle class, an upper middle class, uh, the lower middle class. I mean, there was no middle class in some of the, the European countries in, Eastern, in the Eastern European countries. And so they know what it's like to have a few things. And they know what it's like to be able to buy stuff and do things and go places and so forth. And when you start taking that away from them too fast, they're like, wait a second, that's not how this goes. If you're going to try and do the things that they, they want to try and do to people now, they need to do them a lot slower so that you get used to them and then do a little, another one and another one. Don't try and take everybody's car away on the same day. Just 
keep raising the price of gas a little bit and a little bit and a little bit until finally people can't afford it at all. And they start looking at your subsidized little electric cars, which serves a couple of different purposes, I think. One of the things it serves is you're not supposed to be just free burdening around out there. We don't, we don't have any free range peasants in this country. If you talk to progressives, you're supposed to be driving around, going places, doing things on your own. What are you talking about? You know, who do you think you are getting in your car, driving places without it, without the government knowing where you're going or without anybody's just buy your leave at all? What, what's going on with that? I mean, one of the big things about America that is so amazing to other countries is that people for a long time in America, starting way back into the 30s and really took off after World War II, get in their car and go places. And it's a big country. Go wherever they wanted to. Drive somewhere for a vacation, move for a job, go someplace and check another area out. You know, hard to control people when they're able to do that. Not a good thing if you're uh, trying to control everybody. Oh, gosh. So the other thing I wanted to bring up real quickly was when we were talking about what was going on this last week, I watched Bill Barr, former AG for Trump, who I think is a smart guy. I want to say that, you know, at the beginning, which I think you can tell means I'm going to say things I don't, I don't like about him. He's a swamp creature. He's a smart guy. He's got a decent handle on things. He's sort of at best like an old school uh, kind of Romney and I mean George Romney, uh, Nelson Rockefeller kind of Republican, you know. He's a real swamp creature. He's lived his whole life in a the swamp there. When he, when they talk to him, it sh- they sh- he should be an aquarium, okay, floating with just his eyes sticking out of the water. That's the guy. I mean, he can't help it when he talks about, well, the guy took these classified materials to a, you know, to a country club. That was his remark. That's his house. Okay? Just because he doesn't follow the rules of, like, Let's say Barack Obama, who comes in with not a whole lot of money, leaves with uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, buys a compound in Martha's Vineyard, another one in Hawaii, and walls himself in there. Who knows what he's doing in there? But he's not living on a country club. Trump is a different kind of guy. This is part of why they don't like him. I mean, he doesn't do things the D.C. way, right? So they they don't like what he says. They don't like what he stands for. And they really don't like and don't understand how he operates. You know, he lives at his house. He lives at Mar-a-Lago. It's a huge, beautiful estate. He used to live in that place in New York that looked like uh, up in Trump Tower that looked like it was, you know, had all this gold gilt all over and everything. It was a little showy. But I don't think he can't live there now, for God's sake. Trump can't be in New York for any length of time, the way those people are. So he's down there. And, I mean, so he takes it to his house. That's where he lives. You know, it's like a regular person, just with a whole lot of money. They can't wrap their heads around that. You get, the swamp creatures don't do that. They build compounds and they go lurk in them and hide out and do who knows what and then venture out and yap at the regular people and then run back to it again. They don't live on a, in a country club and play golf out there and, you know, live like Trump did before he was president. Can't get their head around it. And so that's what you get with Bill Barr. And Bill Barr, you know, well, he can't just declassify everything, but yeah, he can. And you know that. It's that what your problem is, is that Trump seemed to say that he could just sort of have these boxes set in front of him and he could just wave his hands over them and declassify them. Uh, yeah, that's that may be a little much if that's in fact what he's saying, but it's not as shocking as Bill Barr and some of the swamp creatures even on the on the right. And by that, I mean barely on the right. Once again, George Romney and Nelson Rockefeller Republicans.
uh, it, the, his, Trump's whole existence bothers them. That's sort of a deep level, right? So that's why you get that response from these people who otherwise seem bright enough and probably have a few good ideas and would re- be reasonably good at protecting your rights. I think Bill Barr would make a good judge. I mean, he would be fair in that regard. He's not going to understand the political pieces. He's just no good at that. I mean, he, like I said, he needs to be, you know, interviewed at an aquarium full of, you know, like swamp water with just his eyes sticking out. But in general, I think he tries to be fair. He tries to interpret the law fairly to people. I mean, that seems simple, doesn't it? Yeah, it's almost impossible to find in our government, in any branch of it now. You know, judicial, legislative, executive, they're all, you know, out there operating as, you know, ideologues, not as equal dispensers of what their job is supposed to be in any way. Everything has a, a political overlay to it. It's difficult for human beings not to have that. And by politics, I mean just what we see in the world, how we how we interpret the world. That's that's no one's perfect. No one is uh, a, a exactly fair arbiter of everything without having any of their influences. But some people would be better at it. I think Bard would be pretty good in that. He's not a good AG for uh, Trump. He's not going to do the kind of how he'll, he would have never done the house cleaning and you know, the starting from the ground up and maybe moving the FBI to uh, Duluth like they ought to, get it the heck out of Washington, uh, break it up in some field offices, break these hegemonies of power out of the D.C. area so they can't, you know, meet in a basement and give everybody a secret handshake and, and plot what's going on. Get them out of there. You know, I realize they can still do Zoom meetings, but it's a lot harder to uh, plot and uh, form a secret cabal when you actually can't exchange a secret handshake and, uh, you know, do whatever, sing the, sing the song of your secret order or whatever it is. So that's what needs to be done. And Barr never would have done that. But we need to do that. We need to break them up and get them out of there. November is coming. Don't be depressed. See you next week. <laughs>